0: Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we talk about science. We being Chris. Hi. Uh,
1: what, are you, what are you talking about, Chris? Well, I, uh, I this week I am interviewing Professor Cordelia Fine, uh, who is a psychologist from Melbourne University, and she has written a number of books. Her most recent book is... Uh, Testosterone Rex, the um, sorry, her most recent book is called Testosterone Rex: Unmaking the Myths of Our Gendered Minds, and this book recently won the Royal Society's Inside Investment Prize for Science Books, so it's basically the science book of the year. So I'm going to be talking to her about her book, her winning the prize, and yeah, what this all means for her understanding of sexism in society.
0: Well. That's really interesting. I was hoping to uh, to hear about her new book, seeing that it did win pr- pretty much the science book of the year, effectively, isn't it? My name is Stu. I am actually going to be talking about something also related to humans, but actually about how our bodies function. I'm going to be talking briefly about acidity in the body and why is acidity important, or maintaining a certain level of acidity is important in the human body.
1: Ah, uh, you so you're not going to remain neutral on this, Stu?
0: No, no, no. I'll be I'll be pretty basic, but uh, I'll also
1: be acid as well. So look out like for some caustic comments uh, as we as we dissolve the, the story about the I don't know. We'll don't try know. and find some solution to all this. Exactly. On with the show. Ooh. You're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris. Now, every year, Britain's Royal Society awards their Inside Investment Science Book Prize for the Best Popular Science Book of the Year. Uh, In 2017, the winning author was psychologist Professor Cordelia Fine from the University of Melbourne, with her book, Testosterone Rex: Unmaking the Myths of Our Gendered Minds. Today, I'm very lucky to be talking to uh, Professor Fine about her work. So, uh, Professor Fine, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you very much. Now, first of all, I should say congratulations on winning the award. Um, What do you think that that sort of recognition says about the impact that your book is having?
2: Um, Well, look, obviously I was absolutely thrilled to have uh, won this year's prize. And, I mean, I I suppose beyond the... Uh, Sort of personal delights. Um, I'm really pleased because obviously the Royal Society is a very prestigious scientific institution and winning the prize is a sort of recognition of the importance of this kind of critical work looking at the science of, uh, of sex and gender.
1: Yeah, is, is this is something that I know that you've written about before. Um, your, your 2010 book, Delusions of Gender, was um, was another notable one. But um, as as the title of this current book suggests, their concentration is on testosterone. Why is that the case?
2: Well, in a, in a sense, it's a sort of... De- testosterone Rex is in some ways a, a sequel, I suppose, to Delusions of Gender. So Delusions of Gender was looking at... Ideas around uh, supposedly hardwired sex differences in the brain and the role of prenatal testosterone um, in creating uh, different dispositions towards understanding the world in the case of men versus sort of understanding people and, and empathizing in the case of <clears throat> in the case of females and what I really wanted to do in testosterone rex was sort of cover further ground, um, particularly looking at Interest in, uh, or ideas around the role of circulating levels of testosterone. So you know, obviously, when when people reach pubescence, there are changes in, in, in the sex hormones, and on average, uh, men have much more circulating testosterone than women. And I became very interested in both scientific and popular ideas around how the role of that that testosterone in um, creating differences in behavior between the sexes and to some degree also contributing to inequalities uh, in the workplace and in wealth and power and so on. But the other thing that I wanted to do in Testosterone Rex that went beyond what I'd done in Delusions of Gender was also look at some of the evolutionary ideas. Um, So when we think about differences between the sexes, we have very... um, you know, very po- very persuasive and powerful narratives around why we should just expect there to be quite striking behavioural differences between the sexes because of um, uh, um, ancestral pe- pressures. You know, back in our evolutionary past, because of the different roles that males versus females play in reproduction. So, one of the things that I I did in testosterone Rex was look at how understanding of those kinds of processes is changing in evolutionary biology.
1: Okay, yeah, this is something that I understand there is still, I guess, some different opinions on out there in the, certainly in the popular world, but also in the scientific world. Can you give us some examples of the, the kind of things where you think that people have, I guess, used an argument that have they pushed too far or that the kind of things that you de- debunk effectively in your book?
2: Well, I, I think there are two really, really nice Examples. So, one is just this idea that um, you know, when you when you say to people "cheap sperm," <laughs> uh, they can usually fill in this sort of chain of assumptions that goes from the explanation of cheap sperm to why there are many more men CEOs than women CEOs, for example, and it has all to do with look, men make much less of investment in reproduction, therefore potentially they can impregnate many many women and have this sort of huge hit the reproductive jackpot and in order to do so They need to seek status in order to be sort of successful uh, Attractive attractive mates to to all the females and this is often presented as just um, You know humans just falling in line with uh, a near universal pattern across the animal kingdom and while, of course, the sort of investment into reproduction is a factor that contributes into the kinds of um, behaviours that male and female animals have, well, one thing that I do in uh, the first part of testosterone Rex is look at how that picture, that empirical picture is becoming much more complicated within evolutionary biology. So, for example, there's much more recognition now of the importance of competition for female reproductive success there's more scepticism about the reproductive potential of males, despite the fact that they, you know, just provide one sperm versus the expensive egg versus gestation, lactation. So the book is certainly not about denying that the dynamics of reproduction influence, um, influence evolution and development but it's really just pointing to how evolutionary biology is is moving towards a much more complex picture and i also point out that in the case of humans we have a lot of really inefficient sex so uh in many animals sexual activity is quite tightly hormonally regulated, meaning that sexual activity is sort of geared towards getting the job done. Um, You know, it it only takes place when there's a good chance of fertilisation taking place. Us humans, our sexual activity isn't like that at all. You know, the the way that we have sex and when we have sex and with whom we have sex, um, in terms of kind of reproductive outcomes, is, is incredibly inefficient. And that's something that has to be, Born in mind, both in thinking about the evolutionary purpose of sexual activity, but also in thinking about the, the reproductive potential of men across a range of different environments. But I think the, the sort of second, uh, really interesting shift in scientific understanding around the area of evolution is um, what's known as a view of uh, an expanded view of inheritance. So we tend to think it's something something's adaptive or something's inherited, an evolved inherited trait, then it must be being passed on through uh, through genes, or genes getting passed on from generation to generation to generation. And another key shift in evolutionary biology, uh, uh, as I said, is this understanding that actually animals and other organisms don't just inherit genetic material, they also inherit other reliable aspects of the environment. So yeah, they inherit you know, a mother, they inherit peers, they inherit a particular sort of physical or ecological environment. And, of course, in our own case, we inherit a cultural environment. And there's some really fascinating examples of how natural selection is kind of recruiting these non-genetic resources in a a very frugal way. And that really is quite an exciting shift in our understanding of how adaptive traits develop and get inherited from generation to generation and how, when that environment changes, those adaptive traits can um, change in the way they develop or, or, or no, longer, no longer appear. And, and I, none of these ideas are really controversial in evolutionary biology. They're just rather different to a, our last century ideas.
0: Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science.
1: Hmm. One of the traits that, that I know you talk about quite a bit is the, um, this idea of risk-taking. Uh, as being some sort of um, people talk about as a difference between men and women, like a propensity to take risks. Uh, how does how does this sort of thing and like the misunderstanding that that relate to workplace um, discrimination? And how how should we tackle it? Do you think?
2: Right. So that's an interesting question. I mean, there there are sort of there are two issues here. So one is that sometimes supposed sex differences in risk taking are kind of called upon to explain why it is that. That, that you know, men are more likely to reach the top of organisations and to earn more money and so on. So the idea being that women aren't willing to take those, the necessary risks to, to get to the top. Um, and look while there, are, there certainly are differences between men and women in, in the risks that um, in the risks that they take and their patterns of risk taking, but one of the things I look at quite closely in the book is what lies behind differences between people, you know, regardless of you know, not just to do with what sex you happen to be, but or gender you happen to be, but just generally what explains differences between people's willingness to take particular kinds of risks is their perception of the likely risks and the likely benefits, and of course, in a gendered world, those kinds of risks and likely benefits can, can be quite different, and they can offer an important insight into why some people may be more willing to take uh, risks, or why men, on average, may be more willing to take particular kinds of risks than women are. So, for example, There's a lot of research showing that in negotiation, uh, negotiation, workplace negotiations can actually be – the calculations of the risks and benefits can be less favourable for women because people – there are gender norms against women asking for uh, things themselves. People tend to dislike women who who are too sort of – Demanding, so to speak, in in workplace negotiations, an opposite example that seems to be emerging from the research is asking for flexible work practices, so that's actually quite stigmatised for men, so that's a riskier proposition for men in the workplace than it is than it is for women though of course we don't think about men being risk averse because they are unwilling to ask for um, uh, unwilling to ask for you know, flexible work even though many, many men would actually like to be able to spend more time uh, with their families or work more flexibly. So but I think was, the second yeah. issue is, oh sorry, yeah.
1: I was just going to say in some ways it's like the, I guess, the, um, the kinds of risks that we value or that we, we notice when we, when we talk about risk taking. There, there are different risks that um, apply to different people and yeah, we kind of have a gendered view of that initially.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So we, I think there's a sort of, we, we, risk taking is linked very closely with masculinity in our mind. So for example, you know, um I worked at the Melbourne Business School for some some time and so one comes across uh you know, business jargon and people refer to big, hairy, audacious goals. So that's quite a gendered phrase. Um, when we think someone's not behaving with enough courage, we tell them uh, to grow some balls, we don't tell them to grow some ovaries. So this is a strong link between masculinity and risk-taking, and actually risk-taking is a is a norm of uh, masculinity, which may help to explain why some studies have suggested that we punish women more when they take risks and they don't work out when when there's failure, which inevitably there is with risk-taking. Uh, we, we judge women more harshly when that happens than we do men, perhaps because it's part of the norm for men to take risks. Um, But yes, one of the things that I've actually recently looked at with um, uh, colleagues, this was a study led by Tekla Morgenroth at the University of Exeter, was that that kind of link between our minds can even influence the kinds of questionnaires that that psychologists develop. So, you know, psychologists have to choose what kind of questions go on their risk-taking questionnaires, and if we're kind of have that think risk think male bias and the kinds of risks that come up will may be the kinds of things that men tend to do more than women tend to do and so one thing that we've done recently in research that was uh, just published uh, last week was develop a new version of a commonly used commonly used questionnaire that actually makes an effort to make those items that go on the questionnaire a bit less stereotypically masculine and what we found is that even when we matched the degree of risk as best as we could, we found that actually what kind of items go on uh, influence whether the conclusion is that men are more risk-taking. So with our new items, we found that those differences were either eliminated or, or even reversed. And that's a really interesting point. If you're trying to, for example, look at the biological origins of sex differences and risk-taking, you know, if, if, By using a different questionnaire, you come to a different conclusion about whether or not men are more risk-taking. You obviously have to be a bit cautious about um, thinking of men as being sort of biologically inherently less risk-taking for uh, reasons of, um, you know, greater testosterone. It's about moving away from the simple view of seeing risk-taking as a very kind of... um, unidimensional personality traits, you know, everyone can be located somewhere on this risk-taking scale. Actually, people's risk-taking propensity is is very idiosyncratic and it's quite specific to the kinds of risks that you're thinking about.
1: I guess it's a good reminder that uh, science is, people like to think of science as unbiased, but the questions that you ask really shape the answers that you're going to get.
2: Yeah, that's right. And look, my, my book isn't I think that's the really important thing to say about my book. I mean, the, the kind, the science of sex differences um, does have social and political implications because of the way you understand what the differences between men and women are, why they exist and and how um, intractable or malleable they are does make a difference to what you can expect in terms of what kind of societies we can hope for. But at the end of the day, the sort of criticism of some of the science is really about making, trying to increase the objectivity of the science. So looking at how, what are the underlying assumptions in our scientific research and sort of probing the validity of those in order to increase... The
1: rigour of the science. Fantastic well thank you very much for for talking to us about this I look I hope that your work does continue to uh, make a big difference. Thanks for having me
2: on the
1: show. That was psychologist and author of Testosterone Rex Professor Cordelia Fine.
0: So, do you have a morning routine, Chris? Do you have something that you do every day when you get out of bed? Most days, I do get out of bed. Um, well, that, that's that's a good start.
1: Yeah. Oh, look, I don't know breakfast, coffee.
0: Yeah, coffee. Coffee's yeah. up there on my list. Yes. Um, I don't, I don't really stick to anything much, but coffee's always there. Yep. Uh, and then I go around and have breakfast, all that sort of stuff. I don't do anything with any particular regularity or strictness or anything. But I overheard someone saying the other day that every morning they took a spoonful of freshly squeezed lemon juice uh, to make sure that their system stayed alkaline. Now, I assume they were talking about their their body, as in the human body systems. Um, But look, it just sounded to me like they didn't really understand a a whole bunch of science, really. So I I just thought I would have a look into this and uh, I wanted to explain why... Lemon juice would have no effect on the alkalinity of your body.
1: this is, I've heard people talking about this. This is kind of a big topic, people are concerned about acid being in your body, being cause of diseases and and this kind of stuff, and and people selling alkaline water and those sort of things.
0: Yeah, and yeah, there is there's a sort of there's a sort of um, you know wellness trend towards you know regulating your own pH by. Consuming various things. Funnily enough, all of them cost money, so there's usually uh, an indicator that you know maybe someone's trying to make a buck out of out of making people think this. But first of all, we should probably talk about what acidity and alkalinity actually mean. Uh, and this is what we are talking about: is the it's a chemical range which is measured using the pH scale. So you've probably heard of the pH scale. Small p, big H? Yeah, small p, big H. So it's actually about the potential of hydrogen. Don't worry about that.
1: What um, was power of hydrogen?
0: They, they keep changing it. I've I learned it as the power of hydrogen, and and I think it's now the potential of okay. hydrogen. But um, what, what it basically is measuring is the amount of available hydrogen ions in a liquid, in an aqueous solution, they say. Um so if there's an excess of hydrogen ions then we say something is acidic and it has a low score on the pH scale and if there's, if there's a lack of hydrogen ions it gets a high score on the pH scale and we say it's alkaline or basic. So that's pretty much it. Acid at one end of the scale, basic at the other end of the scale. Now the scale runs from 0 to 14 generally speaking, but things can be more acid than zero and more alkaline than fourteen. It's just really not common to come across those things because
1: wouldn't like zero mean that there was it was just all hydrogen ions? Pretty much. Okay. So it, how can you have more than that?
0: Um not exactly sure, but I have I have been informed that you can have things that are more acid than that. Okay. Probably it probably means that it's on fire in some way. Um yeah, maybe it means you have to have them crammed into a smaller space or something, possibly. I'm not really sure how that works. Suffice to say that you're probably unlikely to ever come across those things because there's no way you could carry them around in any container um, or move them from one place to another because they would just dissolve those containers. Um, so why is it important? Well, in biochemistry, it's very important. Um because it greatly affects the function of proteins. Um, So proteins all have very specific shapes and all life is dependent on proteins uh, and the shapes they make. The shapes of the proteins are basically formed by hydrogen bonds. So proteins like a big long string of bits and pieces and then hydrogen bonds make it fold up by grabbing on to various points along the string and holding it in a certain shape, so it does a certain job. That's what that's what that's how proteins work. Um, so if you add a whole bunch of extra hydrogen ions, then they can disrupt those protein bonds and they change the shape of the proteins. So in uh, if you have pure water, pure water is neutral on the ph scale it doesn't have an excess of hydrogen ions it doesn't have a lack it's got exactly they're, they're exactly balanced um, it's
1: the um baby bear of the um yeah, of it's, the it's
0: it's just right yeah. it's right in the middle um and so it's not acidic or basic and but in reality most things are either slightly acid or slightly neutral because pure water is actually pretty difficult to come across most of the water on earth is not pure it's got salt in it which changes the ph as well uh So because the proteins are held together by hydrogen bonds, if you disrupt those hydrogen bonds, you change the shape of the protein. So most of the processes within all living cells are controlled by proteins, mostly enzymes, which you've probably heard of. They seem to cram them into everything, washing powder and things like that all over the place. Enzymes are good for you. Well, they actually are. They really are good for you. Without the right enzymes, you would basically die Uh, relatively quickly. So if the pH changes in a cell, then the enzymes stop working in that cell, and basically the cell stops working quite quickly. And then the cell will eventually die off too. So back to our lemon juice tonic that someone's taking every morning. So lemon juice is an acid. It's basically a large proportion of citric acid in water with some sugar and some other bits and pieces some oils and other things that give it the lemony flavor. Um, it has a pH of around 2.
1: Oh that sounds like pretty acidic.
0: It's it's pretty acidic. It's about about the same as vinegar, so vinegar is acidic as well. Now stomach acid has a pH of about 1. And you go, "Oh well, it's only one difference, can't be can't be that big a deal." Yeah, it is more acidic. Uh, it's it's one more acidic. Um, except that the pH scale is a logarithmic scale. So uh, something with a pH of 1 is a thousand times more acidic than something with a pH of 2. So your stomach acid is actually a lot more acidic than your lemon juice that you're actually uh, drinking. So effectively, drinking the lemon juice would dilute slightly the contents of your stomach. It would make it slightly less acidic. Okay, Um, which you know, which would you know, technically make it slightly more alkaline, but only very slightly less. And actually, if your stomach acid gets diluted too much, it can cause problems. You get reflux and all sorts of weird things happening if if your stomach acid isn't acid enough. Um, But the stomach regulates its own pH by secreting more acid when the pH starts getting higher. So if the pH raises your stomach reacts to the pH change by making it more acidic again and keeping it around about... Your stomach's basically sitting around about pH of 3. So if you take the stomach acid out and measure it by itself, it gets to pH 1. But there's always stuff in your stomach floating around, diluting it and making it less acidic. Um, But basically, the higher the the pH of your stomach gets, the more acid your body produces to keep the, the acidity level... At, uh, you know, at an effective level, because the stomach acid is there to break down food and um, digest it, basically. So you might think, okay, so that's the stomach, but there's other liquids in the body, and you're probably thinking, what's what's probably the most, uh, or one of the most important liquids in the body is blood. So blood is a liquid, it's an aqueous solution, it has a pH also. Now the pH of blood sits pretty precisely between
1: 736 and
0: 7.42 on the pH scale.
1: See, I'd imagine that with what you said about the importance of um, proteins and they can be disrupted by certain pH, that you need to have it at a very precise limit otherwise things are going to break down.
0: That's right. And because the stomach inside the stomach, it's not that important, it can actually vary quite a lot because it's outside the body. There's no, there's no cells in contact with the contents of your stomach directly. But your blood is constantly in contact with living cells. So its pH has to be regulated very, very tightly. Um, And it is regulated between 7.36 and 7.42. So it's slightly alkaline all the time. It's slightly above the neutral point. Um, So that's the optimal level. And that's all because of the reasons to do with all the enzymes and everything else that will stop functioning uh, if the blood goes outside of that range. So in some cases, blood can become more acidic. Um, So there's uh, an example I can give is diabetic ketoacidosis, which is a response caused by too much sugar in the bloodstream Mm. and the body produces excess acid in the blood as a response to this excess sugar. Um, But obviously diabetics, uh, you know, have have a chronic illness and they treat that regularly by, you know, taking insulin and other things so that they don't build up to that level. Um, because the the outcomes of that are damage to blood vessels and all sorts of other things. Um, And it can become too alkaline as well. So actually, if if people have uncontrolled vomiting, they can lose all of their stomach acid, which actually lowers, uh, raises the pH of the blood, so it makes the blood slightly more alkaline by losing all your stomach acids. Um, And you can actually get uh, alkaline blood from hyperventilating, so if you breathe too much too quickly, your blood becomes slightly alkaline.
1: Um, but Something to try at home. Now, don't try that at home. No, don't
0: try that at home. Um, hyperventilation is not good for you. Um, but luckily, the body has mechanisms of restoring blood pH to its normal range, uh, either by excreting excess acids or bases in the urine. So you basically go to the toilet and get rid of all of the excess acid or alkaline uh, substances, or by changing your breathing rate. So if you breathe faster, um, it alters the pH of your blood, and if you breathe slower, it alters the pH of your blood because carbon dioxide interacts with the blood and changes the pH. The amount of carbon dioxide dissolved in the blood can actually alter the pH itself. So I guess the point is that the body is finely tuned to keep everything running at an optimal level and even if drinking lemon juice could change your body's ph which it can't really um it wouldn't change it for very long even if it did and of course that's a good thing because if your body's ph changed too much uh, you'd be very likely hopefully seeing a doctor really quickly because you would get very sick That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook. Uh, And if that's not enough Lost in Science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost lost in science. science.